Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Planet B, Everything Must Change. I'm Dahlia Gabriel. This episode features an extended edition of our interview with Labour journalist, author and activist Sarah Jaffe. You may have heard snippets of this interview in our documentary about work and climate breakdown. If you haven't, make sure you check that out on the Navarra Media podcast feed. Before we get started, a reminder that you can order a free copy of Perspectives on a Global Green New Deal, the illustrated book on which this series is based, at www.global-gnd.com. Yeah, hi, I'm Sarah Jaffe. I'm a journalist. I write about work mostly and the politics of work. And I am based between London and New York at the moment. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Could you begin by telling us a bit about your book, Work Won't Love You Back, and particularly the issues that come with centering more work as a demand in our movements? Yeah, I think it's been so interesting in this last year since, well, the book came out in January and we are talking in August. So it's been, you know, seven months of this book being out in the world. And over those seven months, we've started to hear economists talking about things like the great resignation and a labor shortage and all of this stuff. And it's hard sometimes not to like dance around being like, ha ha, I was right. Because people, even on the left, will sort of say things like, you know, but workers want to work and people want jobs and jobs give people meaning. Mm. And it turns out that like actually work is kind of awful for the vast majority of people. And the pandemic took away one of the few things that made work tolerable, which is getting to be around other people. And then all the rest of it was just miserable. So my book is is a look at 10 different forms of work, which are in many ways like the most common or fastest growing forms of work today. And the different ways in which each of those types of work manufactures and inculcates this narrative of loving your job. Mm. Um, So that's everything from the unpaid work done mostly by women in the home to like the tech industry and how programmers Mm. are supposed to work sort of endless hours. But, you know, the job is really fun and cool. And there's like a ping pong table and a masseuse in the office or something. And in each of these chapters, I also looked at the way that those people were organizing around that work and the demands they were making about it. So this is a podcast about imagining a global Green New Deal. And the Green New Deal framing has been quite centered around the US, where the just transition framework relies quite heavily on this idea of good green union jobs. And obviously, guaranteeing a sustainable and sufficient material standard of living for all is fundamental to climate justice. And in many ways, the guarantee of good green union jobs is necessary to alleviate fears that addressing climate change could lead to a sort of deindustrialization style abandonment of working class people. But is there a limitation here in promising simply a replacement of one kind of job with another slightly less harmful one? Is there strategic and ideological space for an anti-work impulse in a global Green New Deal? And are we kind of missing a trick here um, or a window of opportunity where we could normalize an anti-work stance? 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of there's a lot to unpack in this question, right? Like one of the mm-hmm. things that I've done a lot of in the last few years and actually another project that I'm working on right now is based around sort of factory closures and what it means to people who work there and to a community when the factory shuts down, the mine shuts down, the thing around which sort of social life mm. has been organized is gone. Because I think we've been we've been talking in some form about a just transition for a really long time, actually. Like this is a term that has been thrown around for as long as I've been paying attention, which is at least since like the 1999 WTO protests, right? Mm. Um, where like the big thing at the WTO protest was, you know, they called it Teamsters and Turtles. It was sort of environmentalists and union people actually coming together. And that was a really, really big deal in 1999. And so we've been talking about a just transition for like my entire adult life. And in most cases, it hasn't happened. And so workers are are like rightly skeptical of that because normally what happens is the factory goes away and nothing happens. The thing that comes in when I was in Indiana Mm -hmm. at the carrier factory, which sort of famously Donald Trump made a really big issue on the campaign trail. um, The things that were opening next to the carrier plant were a target warehouse and an Amazon warehouse. And those jobs pay you, you know, now Amazon's bragging about paying $15 an hour, but these guys were making, you know, double that at Mm. the factory. Mm. Um, Or they were making, you know, $26, $27 an hour plus overtime, which they did plenty of overtime. And the difference there is real. It's substantial. It's the difference between owning a house Mm. and living in a lousy apartment. Um, And... So, like, there's absolutely something super real and beyond the money that happens when you do shut down these industries. And when, you know, whether we're talking about um, mines or auto factories or any number of other things, these are things that are going to have to be either ended completely or radically changed. And so, like, we do have to pay a lot of attention to that. But the thing is also is, like, when I asked the people who worked in these places, what they would want to do with their time. Very few of them were like, oh yeah, I'm going to miss like standing at the same machine for 10 hours a day, every day. I'm going to miss like lifting the, the machine to like screw in the same bolt however many times an hour, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and mostly, you know, it's, it's a different thing that you're going to miss. And so I think there's sort of been a failure to grapple with that. And also just to, to like say, like we could offer a world with less work mm. and that that actually, um, you know, Alyssa Battistoni talks about there being sort of two steps to the kind of green new deal, right? It's like, you need to do the part of the transition, which is short term and sort of often one-off projects like weatherproofing homes. Mm. That's not a thing you would need to do every winter. The point of it is it's one and done. Mm. Um, Building wind turbines and then wind turbines just don't require that much maintenance. And this is also true, by the way, of like building an oil pipeline, right? Like dirty energy is also often one and done. And these are are also short-term jobs. So the thing we, we sort of haven't dealt with and thought about and talked about in much detail, even on the left in recent years, is the fact that like, okay, then what? Say we win and we get this massive green transition that we need, then what? Once once we've weatherproofed the homes and built the wind turbines and the solar panels, Mm -hmm. then what? 
what are the jobs that aren't one and done? What are the jobs that that remain labor intensive? And how do we actually like more fairly distribute those through society so that everybody has some work, maybe even meaningful work, although it doesn't have to be meaningful in any other sense than like, you know, it helps society run. And then give all of us a lot more time off. Another symptom of the sort of US centrism of the Green New Deal is a disproportionate focus on building green infrastructure, transport, et cetera, in North America without much awareness of how a sort of green industrial revolution could impact workers further down the supply chain, uh, largely in the global south. Is there space within the labor movements in the global north to reframe our understanding of what a new deal entails away from this nationalist tendency and anchor it instead in solidarity with global working class people who might otherwise be expected to do the dirtiest work of the north's green transition? Right. And that that is, you know, just ongoing from the state of things today where oil workers and, and you know, um, miners and, and whatever, right? Like when Margaret Thatcher shut down the coal mines in England, she wasn't doing it for the environment. She was doing it to crush unions um, and to crush working class solidarity. And mm. England didn't like magically then transition to like perfectly clean energy. It just outsourced its dirt. Um so the, the Green New Deal, mm. obviously the name is based in Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal, which is the thing that um, the, the massive sort of suite of economic policies that got America out of the Great Depression. And, you know, one of the things about it was that it was still, you know, designed to sort of uphold the social relations that existed inside and outside of America, Right. Um, so it was designed to put men into men's work and women into women's work. It was designed, you know, on the insistence of sort of Southern Democrats to exclude black workers. Um, it was designed to sort of ebb and flow as the, the demands of private employers waxed and waned. So people would be thrown off of their works progress jobs at picking season in the South so that they would, you know, be desperate for jobs again and, and go pick cotton at low rates. Um, so there's all of this stuff baked into the sort of New Deal framework. And then obviously a lot of the people who are thinking about a Green New Deal in the U.S. are, are talking about those things and making sure, you know, when, when Jamal Bowman and Cori Bush are talking about a Green New Deal, they're not, they are very, very aware of the history of the thing that they're talking about, you know? Yeah. But... Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting about talking about a Green New Deal and talking about the U.S., because the U.S. has been, and I say this as an American, the biggest barrier to real climate action for decades. And that's been true under Democratic administrations as well as Republican administrations. Um, you know, Barack Obama was really proud of turning the U.S. into a net oil producer, which I guess on one level you can say like, okay, well, he's taking the dirty work back into the U.S., but on the other hand... Now we're just pumping more oil out into the world um, and using that mm. not as a way to sort of move to quote unquote energy independence, but just to, you know, undermine the oil producing countries, whether they be, you know, oh my God, Venezuela, where the lefties are, or, um, you know, the Middle East. So yeah. yeah, what America has to do is really, really important because it's a massive contributor to all of the problems. Um, and like Britain historically has also been a massive contributor to all of the problems, but it's smaller and it's easier to decarbonize. 
um, and it doesn't have an empire anymore, although don't tell Boris Johnson mm. that. Um, so yeah, so the US, <laughs> like in some ways it does have to be the focus because it's been such a bad actor for so long. But on the other hand, you know, there, there is a way that like, yeah, the Green New Deal, it, it can promise a sort of zero loss framework, right? Where like, we don't have to give anything up or change our lifestyles at all. And I don't think that we're going to win anything by telling people you're going to have to give up everything and sacrifice and be miserable. Um, That's not how we win. That's certainly not how you're going to convince anybody to go along with this, particularly people who are going to lose the jobs they currently have. That said, like, yeah, the U.S. has a lot to answer for. And I mean, you know, we're as we're recording this sort of, you know, Afghanistan is collapsing and that is entirely the fault of the U.S. government. Again, successive Republican and Democratic administrations Mm. have destroyed this country. And we can't just sort of Mm. disappear from this responsibility that we have to all of these places all over the world that we have invaded, we have bombed, we have um, put sanctions on, we have in various ways sort of helped to underdevelop. Um, And that does require... um, some real responsibility and we're getting a sort of sense of what that's going to look like right now with the vaccines, which is to say that the rich countries are going to worry about the rich countries first Mm. and the rest of the world can basically die miserable as long as we get what we want. And that is not actually, um, again, something that we're being shown by the Delta variant right now. That's not a way that we can, function because it will blow back on us that these are global scale problems, whether they be climate catastrophe or global pandemic, we really are all in it together. And it can't just be a sense of, of sort of goodies for the, you know, the white working class in order to convince them to come along nicely and not vote for Trump again, um, or the next version of Trump that might be worse. Mm. So yeah, the way we have to figure out how to have these conversations in the US is is incredibly important. And also it's gonna be different than it is in the rest of the world. And I, I don't know if the Green New Deal itself is a framework that is helpful beyond the US. Sometimes I don't know if it's helpful in the US, but you know, that's me. So the COVID crisis has put the notion of key or essential work under the microscope, allowing us to see very clearly what jobs and what forms of labor are truly important in society and how this labor appears so often to be systematically undervalued. What lessons do you think we can take about labor from the pandemic and what connections can we make as we organize around and through the climate crisis? Yeah, I think the essential work conversation has been so useful and interesting and telling, right? Um, We're having, for instance, like massive conversations about the values of domestic labor, right? Every single article about how moms are freaking out and how people want their cleaners back or whatever is like a reminder that a lot of work goes on in the home in order to make society function. And yeah, so we've seen sort of in what could be shut down, what could move into the home and what, you know, 
sort of had to go on a demonstration of, of, you know, the importance of the work of social reproduction and the sort of unimportance of other stuff. And like, I think a lot about the Amazon workers who walked off the job um, at various points during the pandemic. And they would talk about, you know, they would say like, look, like you call us essential workers and like, that's fine. I'm happy to like pack food for people and send people, you know, whatever it is that they might need. But like, Mm. I don't want to risk my life to send people like rubber chickens that they're ordering off of Amazon because they're bored. And like, that's actually a really good sort of (laughs) framework to look at broadly when we're talking about the Green New Deal, we're talking about sort of global climate crisis is like, how much dumb stuff do we buy because we're bored and miserable? Um, And like, we all did it. I am not trying to say (laughs) that I did not like buy some things I didn't need during the pandemic. We all did. Um, But like, yeah, how much of like what we produce and consume, particularly in the global north, is is rubber chickens? That like, you know, that like the world is on mm. fire. Why are we like manufacturing rubber chickens in a factory um in China or Bangladesh and then putting them on a ship and sending them maybe to get stuck in the Suez Canal, um, which was one of the high points of this year, really. Um, and <laughs> you know, to go to England to then be distributed to people who somehow needed a rubber chicken because they're bored and their life is miserable. Um, right. Like what, what, what? (laughs) Right. Um, and that, that actually like it, it, it reminds us so much. And, And I think, um, you know, everybody going out to clap for the NHS clap for healthcare workers, um, and now we're seeing healthcare workers being offered a 1% pay raise, right? I've been covering this nurses strike in Massachusetts mm-hmm. and they've been on strike. Let me see. I talked to them. I talked to Marie, one of the nurses on the bargaining committee last week, and it was day 157 of the strike la- a week ago today. So they've been on strike mm-hmm. for 160 something, 170 something days, um, been on strike since March because, and the main demand isn't money. It's, it's staffing. Yeah. It's hire more nurses because we're actually understaffed. And that means we can't give good patient care. Um, you know, when you look at this kind of work that is incredibly important, that, that kept people alive, that keeps people alive every day. And then, you look at the social value placed on it and the way that these, you know, people are trying to wring every last bit of productivity. And they do talk about productivity, even if they're not talking about profits. In the Mm -hmm. case of this Massachusetts strike, it is a for-profit hospital. But even when they're not talking about profits, they are still trying to wring more productivity out of nurses, even in the NHS, right? Um, You still have management consultants coming in and and trying to make it more efficient. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so we're seeing... In, in real sort of up-close fashion, how little social value we've placed on the things that are actually the most important and the most necessary. So I think that mm-hmm. it's given us a great look at this kind of work. And these are, you know, these are green jobs. This is healthcare work is not carbon intensive work. It's labor intensive work. Um, and those are the jobs that are still going to be around after the short-term 
you know, building of wind turbines and, and, you know, public transit. Um, those are the jobs that are going to continue. Those are the jobs that actually need to be revalued. And like, Mm. we have to have a big conversation that like everybody sort of dances around, frankly, which is that when we talk about like more good union jobs, what we're talking about is manly man jobs for men, because we don't think that we can tell men you might have to become a nurse. Mm. And because these jobs are still wildly Mm. gendered and our expectations is that men will get to do sort of manly Mm. man jobs for men. And we don't, you know, again, these are things that we can't just sort of one for one replace without looking really squarely at these big, scary, messy questions at the heart of capitalist heteropatriarchy, (laughs) racial capitalism. Like, you know, we can't deal with this while thinking that like white men still get to have the kinds of jobs that white men have had for a hundred years, 200 years, and that we have constructed white masculinity around. We have to actually like take a look at these things. And again, this is, this is really hard. I don't walk into a factory to do interviews and say like, by the way, we need to like deconstruct white masculinity. I go home and write the article that says that, but like, you know, that, that, yeah. but that is at the heart <laughs> of this conversation we're going to live differently after this. This is sort of what I mean about like, we have to talk about the fact that things are going to be different and that it still doesn't have to be bad, but it Mm. is going to be different. And it is going to be giving up a sense of Mm. an order to the world that some people have been very comfortable with, even if it doesn't serve them well. And I guess as someone who is so (laughs) well-versed in the labor movement, you know, I think that there is a sort of, uh, particularly in the in the global north, there is a, a communication impasse in many ways between the climate movement and the labor movement. Uh, this is something I find it doesn't exist as much in the south, but in the north, it very much is. You know, the 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 workers' movement has been pitted against the climate movement. What do you think the climate movement needs to do to better have that conversation? I think, again, we should sort of separate this question because like parts of the quote unquote workers movement are very on board with a Green New Deal and with a just Mm. transition and with all of these things and have been leading the charge. Right. The Nurses Union, National Nurses United in the U.S. has been the number one backer of every sort of progressive policy out there, basically. But one of the big things has always been, you know, they've been calling for a carbon tax. They've been calling for all sorts of things. They've been calling for a millionaire's tax to fund green transitions, all of this. And they are in the AFL-CIO, in the Federation, with these other unions. So a lot of this conversation that we're having, um, we have to get, first of all, we have to get real specific about which unions, Mm. which unions. Um, And then we have to look at where those unions are coming on board. So um, the Painters Union in the U.S. has been working with DSA to DSA's Eco-Socialist Caucus to organize around the PRO Act, which is labor law reform in the U.S. And this is a coalition that's really, really significant because like the building trades unions have been the ones that are opposed to transition, right? These are unions that are largely made up of men. For a very long time, they were mostly white men um, who do manly man jobs for men. And I'm, I'm wildly stereotyping here. And just to <laughs> counter that, I would encourage everybody to go on TikTok and look up hashtag women in trades because it's <laughs> the best. Um, but like 
the seeing this union in particular, which is again a building trades union, um, getting on board with a bunch of socialists, eco-socialist young people who are, and they are campaigning around a priority that is a priority of the entire labor movement, which is labor law reform that would actually. Um, make it easier for workers to unionize because DSA understands and the eco-socialist crew within DSA understands particularly that we're not going to get any of these things unless we get workers more bargaining power. Mm. Um, and we're not going to get any of these things unless we get the entire labor movement on board. So I think the question is something like that, right, is is like we have to be honest about which unions are on board and which unions aren't um, and look at why. Look at what they need. Look at what they're not getting. Look at what they're getting from the current situation. Mm. Um, figure out what the priorities are that can be mutual priorities, right? Like yeah. reforming labor law is necessary in a lot of places and doing it in the right direction, not like what like Macron and France and whatever have been trying to like make it worse. Um how do you then sort of get to a place where we understand that our priorities are the same thing? Yeah. And I think to get back to my favorite subject in the world, which is shorter working hours, um, <laughs> I think especially after the pandemic, we're in a moment where like everybody would love some time off. And I think it's a really good moment to come back and say like, hey, one of the things that we should be talking about here is just less work in general. Wouldn't you like more time off for the same pay. Mm. Wouldn't you like more time with your family and less time breaking your body at this job? Um, these are things that can be and have been historically priorities for the entire labor movement, whether they be women in caring jobs, men in construction jobs, men in caring jobs, women in construction jobs. Um, shorter working hours was something that people could sort of come together around. And so things like that, right? Like law, legal reform that makes it easier for workers to form unions and then to make demands about less work because when those demands, you know, the CWU here in the UK is, is you know, organizing around less work and supporting a four-day week, um, when you're making those kinds of demands that can help everybody that also align with the climate movement mm -hmm. and then people who are not in the labor movement and like also like most of the environmental movement also has jobs and, and could unionize. And frankly, if you're working for an environmental pro uh, nonprofit, you really probably need to unionize <laughs> because some of those working practices are God awful. I'm not naming <laughs> names, but you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm talking about most of them really. So, like, we have to sort of understand these as demands that benefit the whole working class. The labor, a lot of labor unions and labor leaders in recent years have sort of let go of talking that way. Mm. But it's what's going to be necessary to understand this. And, and uh, when I mean a whole working class, I do mean like an international working class, like a global working class. It requires understanding that working class people in China and in Afghanistan are also working class people that we should be in solidarity with and think about what they need too. Mm. Um, that rather than sort of giving into this like new cold war with China that Joe Biden's all high on and thinking that that can be like a, a, 
an acceptable trade-off to get decent labor policy. Mm-hmm. Um, we really, that's not, that's a yeah. devil we cannot accept. Um, that this kind of conversation um, is not easy to have, but it is one that actually unions and, and the labor movement are, we have a history of this. We know how to talk about this. These terms are here. They're not even that old. When we saw the teachers go on strike a couple of years ago in West Virginia, um, they were wearing red bandanas as a callback to the mine wars, which had been, you know, a hundred years earlier. Mm. People had grandparents who were, you know, involved in that. And so, you know, we, one of the things the labor movement has done is to try to keep alive that history. And, that means we should be able to draw on it in these moments of crisis. And I wonder if, you know, bringing it back to the beginning, how, as you said, the kind of demand for shorter work hours for less work has been kind of replaced by a demand for more jobs. I wonder if, you know, the kind of anti-growth impulse at the heart of a Green New Deal or at the heart of climate justice could be an interesting avenue? Like, do you see that as an as a potential avenue or opening where we can start to bring back those old, more radical demands surrounding less work? Yeah. So the this sort of demand for more work, um, Joshua Clover calls it the affirmation trap, right? And it's um, rooted again in these sort of factory closures, pit closures, um, the sort of the wave in the 1970s responding to the economic crisis of the 1970s of cracking down on unions by moving moving the mines, moving the factories elsewhere, right? So capital mobility um, and workers being left behind. And so suddenly, um, as Joshua Wright said, and I, I cite him on this in my book, um, workers are put in the position of having to affirm their own exploitation in order to survive. And the way that this is played out mm-hmm. is that like, it's really hard to go on strike to keep a factory open. Right. And the, the strike is sort of workers ultimate mm-hmm. weapon. But when the company wants to close the factory and move it somewhere else, what does the strike accomplish other than giving the boss what he wants, which is you're not working. Um, and so we saw that, in the U.S. in the recent United Auto Workers strike at General Motors, when one of their demands was keeping open the factory at Lordstown, a couple of others that the company wanted to close, and they didn't win those demands. You know, they won some some improvements in pay and healthcare, but they didn't win keeping the factories open because, like, what are you going to do about that? How you know you can't sort of mm. you don't have a weapon to keep the mm. factory open. You can't, you don't have a weapon to force the boss to give you a job. Um, So you resort to sort of begging and making concessions. And that has been so ingrained now for, you know, this is my lifetime. um, That the idea of saying like, oh, maybe we want to work less, which is the thing that those workers at Lordstown were saying back in the 70s when they were famous for going on wildcat strikes. Mm. They were like, screw this. This is terrible. I don't want to be at a factory all my life. I don't want to be a factory for eight hours today. I'm I'm leaving early. Um, You know, they... they (laughs) I talked to um, Tim O'Hara, who was the president of the union at Lordstown, and he was... 
Um, he started work there in like 1972 and his brother started right when the factory opened in 1966. And he had these stories of like being in high school and his brother, you know, leaving for work on the afternoon shift and then coming back in in time for dinner and just be like, yeah, well, they fired Billy. So we all walked out. Um, yeah, like those workers back then <laughs> were just like, screw you, man. Um and that has been like so lost because in the interim time, you know, Lordstown is not far from Youngstown, Ohio. And in, you know, Youngstown, the steel mills closed and the city was really shattered. Um, you know, these, these places in, in the Rust Belts are really shadows of their former selves because the forms of income disappeared and there was nothing you could do about it. And with that, was lost this entire sort of culture of militancy that remembered that work was mm. bad actually, and that your boss was actually exploiting you and that the challenge mm. should be to like give your boss as little as possible, not to like beg to spend your life in this factory. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I love those stories and I love sort of asking people to tell those stories because again, like this wasn't that long ago. This was in the memory of somebody who still works at this factory. Actually, Tim's retired, mm -hmm. but his wife still works at, at GM. Um, so the way that, that we have to think about like, oh, right. This isn't, this isn't that long ago. This is in our institutional memory. This is in our actual memory. in in many cases that, we can think about doing this a different way. Um, we can think about working differently because like these were things that it were not, these were demands that were not coming from like, ooh, intellectuals in the university. These were demands that were coming from working class people on the line saying, this job maybe kind of sucks. Mm. <laughs> um, and that, <laughs> yeah, that, that sort of entire tendency and understanding um, you just don't have to dig that deep for it, I think. And this is what we're sort of seeing right now with what people are calling like mm. the great resignation and all of these labor shortage stories. And, you know, in, in the mm. UK here, it's like truck drivers, right? There's a real shortage of truck drivers. So companies are suddenly having to give bonuses and give raises. And like, I think it was John Lewis that's giving like a two pound mm. an hour raise um, or, you know, whatever it is. It's like, these are actual real changes, because they can't get enough people to do the jobs because it turns out the jobs mm. are kind of bad. Mm. And so I wonder if, do you think that the Green New Deal or climate justice could be an avenue through which that could be resuscitated? I think it's one of many ways to talk about it. And it's going to resonate more with some people than with others, right? That like, mm. in some cases, it might be better to talk about labor militancy first and then remind people like, oh yeah, this, this thing that you're mm. calling for actually will also help us. Um, and that like solidarity is, yeah. is constituted through struggle, right? It's not sort of just constituted by focus grouping terms and, and terminologies, but it's actually constituted by like showing up on the picket line, um, by turning up to say like, how can we yeah. help? How can we be there to be part of this struggle? And then you will understand that like we do care and we're not just sort of mouthing the words just transition while we trot off to our new, you know, index Davos meeting. Mm -hmm. But we are actually here with you because this is actually our joint struggle. Um, so, yeah, so that's what I see, um, mm -hmm. you know, the DSA folks working on PROACT calls, um, people showing up at strikes, people showing up 
at protests, people joining their union. If you're in a country like the UK where you can, in fact, join a union and become active in your union um, and be a voice within the union that says like, hey, these are these are things that are important to me as a working class person. And they are, you know, I think that I want to hear what's important to you and how our interests overlap and intersect and complement each other so that we can be in common struggle together because that's actually where solidarity comes from. It doesn't sort of come from like hashtags on Twitter and, and um, figuring out the best way to, to talk about something. Comms is not everything, comrades. <laughs> Hashtag general strike is not going to bring about the general strike, you know? <laughs> You're going to have to actually talk to people. <laughs> Sarah Jaffe, thank you so much for joining us today. That was a wonderful conversation and um, look forward to chatting to you again soon. Thank you for listening to Planet B. This series was made possible by the generosity of the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung. It was written and created by Dahlia Gabriel, Freddie Stewart and Harpreet Kaur Paul. The music and sound was produced by Ben Heidemann and the podcast artwork was designed by Tamika George. Just one final reminder that you can order the illustrated book on which this series is based, Perspectives on a Global Green New Deal, for free at www.global-gnd.com. I've been your host, Dahlia Gabriel, and thank you for joining us.